Welcome to a new episode of Shades of Grey. Today we have two special guests with us, Lillian Myers and Bradley Sherman from Economy4. It's a social innovation organization helping businesses and governments translate human longevity into opportunity for societal and economic impact. Welcome, Lillian and Brad. Hello. Hi, thank you. So um, let's start with you, Brad. You've spent quite a few years at AARP where we actually briefly crossed paths before you started Economy 4. So can you tell us what motivated you to switch gears and start your own firm? Well, I think it was a number of things. The, the, the first is that um, um, I had the opportunity to meet um, Lillian Myers as well as some other kindred souls um, along this path and doing some work with AARP overseas. And I, I think um, at the time when I was considering departure, um, the stars were aligning around um, other items, including Lillian looking at doing her own startup um, post IBM. And for me, you know, the, the writing on the wall was really uh, uh, what I saw as a shift in the overall longevity economy, which JRP is so rightfully put on the map as a, as a big economic factor at $7.6 trillion in economic in the activity in the U.S. alone, um, to one that was just too big to, to attack at once. Um, there is this constant flood of people going to end of life and focusing on healthcare, but very few people, um, innovators that were really tackling the enormous opportunity that exists between adulthood and true old age. Thanks for that, Brad. Um, let's, uh, Lillian, just have a question for you. So you've been, um, with um, with startups for a good part of your career, you were on the board of several organizations, um, and you were also uh, within the global leader within the aging and the longevity economy with, uh, when you were at IBM. So, what's what's special about Economy Four? What what's uh, what's the driver behind you kind of starting this off? Well, a lot of it reflects comments that that Bradley just made. There is a gap as, as you look at starting something um, at any point, it's trying to understand where there's a gap in the marketplace and a need to be filled and where the timing is right. And what I got the opportunity to see around the world with the, the role that I had with IBM was that many companies in many different sectors and industries were trying to find their way here, understanding there was something there was a reflection of something that they understood that wherever they were on the on the map around the globe, they knew that this was a, a large and growing part. People over 50, for example, were a large and growing part of their customer base. But what they needed to do and say and how to capture them was something they just couldn't quite get to. Now, IBM, like many companies, is in the business of building technologies that they can sell or license to other companies. What I began to see was that, you know, 40 companies in, in uh, you know, 20 countries later, I began to really see that this wasn't technology problem to be attacked. It was a an understanding of the market to be attacked. So for me, it was, there's a gap. There's some very real timing. There's something explosive happening that isn't a wave. It's not like the interpretation that many people have, which is that that it's a tsunami, that this is something that's going to overrun them. But rather, it's more like um, 
throw up the, the bed sheet and you're changing the sheets on your bed and you put the, 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 the sheet up in, in the air and it captures some air and it slowly begins to dissipate. We kind of looked at that as this is a moment where there is a bubble, not a bubble the way that we've seen them in recent years, but a bubble that was created over 150 or so years of, of thinking about words like retirement and establishing uh, policies that force people away from work and away from uh, social and financial engagement or set the expectation for someone that they are old and in decline after they reach a certain moment in time or a certain number in age. And yet there are people emerging from it all over the place and we need to look at it differently. So it became the basis for the idea of a social impact and a social enterprise type of organization that could really change the conversation and show some real um, direct results of that working with companies and governments to help them see clearly that we, and I'll include myself in this group, are different than they thought we were. There is so much, I wouldn't say misconception, or maybe it is, right, myth about how people should age or how aging should be and what you should do at different point in time. And we fail to recognize that we're all different, right? And we enter different cycles differently. We all have different life experiences. We were raised differently. So why wouldn't we think about aging differently? Um, I think it's a real mist. No, I think think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, we're caught in this trap of thinking aging is very um, one-directional. Some people refer to it as linear. Um, And that's true uh, because we are born and we do die. But that space in between is the sum of a lot of different experiences that really create an entire human being. You know, one of the pieces that I find most, um, most interesting about this idea of shifting from age to stage It's just going to a playground today and seeing kids run around and looking at the faces of their parents. And you realize very quickly that the faces of these parents are that of an 18-year-old woman or a 25-year-old man or a 35 or a 45 or a 50-year-old. And that all of a sudden shows you that while these children might be the same age, three, four, five, and six, the diversity of the ages of their parents is up to 32 years. And that's pretty striking because at that moment in time, all of those parents are sharing the same space where it comes to their children, but they're not sharing the same stage where it might come where it might come to their income or the career or the state of their relationship or how long they've been married. It's really fascinating to take a look down market, sometimes younger, to see what it'll look like as we live longer. Interesting. Uh, we were working with NBC, as you know, not too long ago, and, and, and this came up, and I, and I used that, that same uh, example, and the woman said, uh, the producer said, you know, I'm that 50-year-old mother. And all of a sudden, it clicked for her that something really interesting, really wild is happening right now that we all see, but because of our very ageist blinders that have been forced upon us through institutionalized, individualized Uh, ageism, it's very hard for us to see.
So stage, not age, uh, is this probably yeah. the tagline for the sketch note for this episode, Theo? And you'll see that all over our website, um, and you'll see that as a it is a hashtag we use uh, in, in on virtually all of our posts. That's brilliant. I, I think what. One of the more interesting things about this for us is that, you know, while we started it thinking about the notion and, and knowing where both Bradley and I come from in our recent history and uh, and for Bradley, much, much longer history around this, um, it, it was the, the starting point was you're not representing people who have happened to have passed the halfway mark in a hundred year life well, so we need to help organizations do that and, and clearly get a clue about what's different. Um, about us today, but what we quickly came to see and why we have gotten to this notion of stage, not age, is that it's not about that at all. It's about long life. We we got this unbelievable bonus, this prosperity, this longevity bonus that, that has created prosperity in the world and all kinds of other things, but it came as a result of science and technology and innovation uh, throughout, you know, starting uh, even in even before the industrial age, but you see population and all kinds of things play into this. But we, you know, think about it in very real terms. The last level five pandemic was a hundred years ago, last October. We've had nothing that even made a, a beyond a level one since then. We've learned to replace parts, and we're now talking about three D printing of hearts and things from your own genetic material in the relative near term. So when we look at what's happening today, if we don't get this ageism problem right, we are actually setting the stage for the generations that follow behind. And with longer and longer uh, generational links, later and later birth timings, and fewer and fewer children being born, and lack of resiliency in some of our follow-on generations, we really are looking at a squared-off demographic stack. And so we have to think about multi-generational everything. We have to think about how the world comes back together in senses of community and family that are that are different than how we've segregated ourselves using age as a marker over the last 100 to 150 years. So that's a good segue, um, actually, to, to something we're curious about. So what are some of the specific areas that you're focusing on at Economy for? I, um, you guys mentioned uh, briefly about, you know, the gap that exists that companies are not addressing between adulthood and old age. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, there, there are four areas that we, we really dive into. And, it's, and again, it's focused on that stage between adulthood and old age a stage really of ascendance where individuals are still socially, culturally, technologically, and probably most importantly, economically connected. And in fact, for many folks, you know, this period of ascendance is a true upward curve. You know, they're seeing, they're seeing their lives grow in a way they couldn't have possibly imagined, um, especially if they're using their own parents as a barometer for that where their parents may have started to see decline in retirement and in old age. We focus on four areas, their work, well-being, and that's both financial and physical, uh, innovation and uh, investment. Um, and those are looking at both the individual as well as the institution um, to illustrate the fact that, um, that a shift is happening 
and that better products and services should be directed to this all-important consumer group. One thing that we have uncovered, in fact, this was Lillian's own research of, of, of Harvard Business Review and their top-performing CEOs, was that the average age is now 60. Um, that puts these people in a unique position where they're starting to think about themselves as those individuals living a four-stage life, as a person in ascendance, and um, one that may need specialized products and services. The trick is, is converting that person's stage and their understanding of their own stage into action. Because we have this habit of looking at others and saying, well, they're old, but I'm not. And that realization that, that we are uh, living longer is one that we should be translating to a larger market. Cheers, Brad. Uh, just a slight deviation from the flow of thoughts. Uh, something that came to me is uh, uh, both yourself, Brad, and Lillian, uh, you've had uh, a glimpse of corporate care, career uh, that you've come across. So, Lillian, you've been at IBM, and Brad, you've been at AARP, and now you're doing a startup. So how is this transition working out? What are your, do you, do you sense a, a, what do you call it, a reality shock? When you made the transition, what what did you make some any assumptions that kind of shocked you over or a period of time? So, what are your what are your takeaways from that experience? Well, personally speaking, for me, you know, this is it's a bit of a shock coming from a big institution uh, like AARP um, to doing a startup. So there's that that kind of immediate wow, this is this is something completely different. So that's the that's the kind of uh, everyday wake up. Um, it's amazing to me in a startup um, how easily decisions can be made versus in a big enterprise. Um, but I think probably the one thing that, that jumps out more than anything else is just the innate hunger that people have for this type of information and the realization that we're seeing among so many people that we talk to um, both domestically and internationally, they recognize the fact that they're living in this new life stage um, and a willingness to talk about it. It's really, really been shocking to me how, how um, we've tapped into a unique nerve um, that people are, are willing to express to us and to, to others. And, and I, I think for me, um, it, it's, it's a little different. So IBM was an anomaly in my history. I started at Microsoft way back in the day. There were 5,000 people there, and I thought that was a big company. Um, so I've done startups for years and years, and it is the most comfortable place for me. Um, IBM was um, the thing that I was doing for fun, just to be what I wanted to be, which at that point in time was a was an individual contributor on a global scale and, and spending a lot of time around the world being a consultant to IBM consultants, which was for me fantastic. And so the, so for me coming back to startup plan was, was really where I belong and, and feel most comfortable. I think the, um, the most interesting learning for me is that in all the startups that I've done, I've never uh, been at a, at a, at a moment where the timing was spot on. 
it's always the too early, too late. In fact, when I talk to entrepreneurs very often, when I give talks, I, care, I happen to own an Apple Newton. Do you guys know what that is, an Apple Newton? Yes, I do. Uh, oh, good. So, so I have one I, that I bought when they were new. <laughs> not, not I love later. those, that and uh, the Palm 7. Remember those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was the that was what came next and was even better. But it, so I I carry around this Newton and I carry around an iPad and I hold them both up and say, what's the difference between these two? Because essentially there is nothing except that there was no infrastructure for what the Newton intended to be. So it was more than a decade too early for what the timing in the market was. And I think, you know, that's the story for most entrepreneurs is their time is either off. And I've been a participant in, in early stage companies, some that have been sold to Google, to Aetna, to, to others um, that are um, later, they've taken 10 years for the market to catch up with what the vision was. So getting on the timing here has been the most interesting thing for me because it's never happened to me in quite this way before. Um, what it does present, however, is challenges to getting your your team built quickly, getting your your um, financial picture built quickly, getting customer base and getting selling done quickly when you still haven't built out all the assets. Um, it, when you have to, you know, kind of start from the, the consulting place that you know you can deliver immediate value on and build out the core assets that are the longer term growth strategy for the company. So it's the, for me, it's coming back to normal and rather than jumping ship from something big. So the big was the unusual to me and I'm I'm back now where, where it feels comfortable. It's just a matter of uh, keeping pace and and trying to stay on pace to get it to, to take advantage of where the market is right this minute. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. an interesting um, lead into into something I'm curious about. You mentioned timing. Timing is critical. Um, that's what we always advise startups, right? It's, it's, it's not just about the product that you're offering. It's not just about your team. It's also about timing. Is the market valley, um, ready for yeah. what you're ready to deliver? So if we apply that to longevity, right, I would argue the market is ready. We're not getting any younger. Um, but what are some of the other critical stakeholders that you think are important to for all of us to continue to drive innovation in this space? Well, I, I mean, I think business has to lead. Um, if I'm understanding your your question, you know, the there has to be buy-in from two sides for real success here because we're talking about, you know, in many ways, a fundamental reorganizing of society. Um, one that's focused on long life and one that's, not necessarily focused exclusively on youth. You know, we're talking about shifts in educational policy, uh, pensions policy, private savings. Um, these are big shifts that will require substantial movement of um, ideas first um, and then action. And, 
you know, the, the private sector does have the ability to move faster in this space. But in order to achieve real success here, the public sector and public policy needs to follow. And this is everything in public policy, too. And that's my, you know, that's historically been, you know, my, my background is public policy. You need to have proactive education policies that don't necessarily double down on a four-year degree, that look at long-term education over the course of someone's life. You need to have transportation policies and city development policies that look at the whole human not just somebody who's young and fit. Um, you also need to have um, good workplace policies. And, and those can come in both the form of a private sector uh, approach, but also a public sector approach. You know, mandatory retirement still is in play in, in, in a number of countries throughout the world. You know, we're pushing out individuals that are, that are highly valuable in the workplace just because we have laws that make us do that. In fact, we have a good a good friend and colleague in Japan who that's happened to him this year. He's 63 years old and he's being pushed out of his job. This guy is at his peak and they're throwing out a major asset because it is the law. And in a long life society, that approach is insane. Great, Brad. Uh, I like the way you finish your points with, with, with like, yeah, bang. Anyways, so I have one question for both of you. You've had exciting career journeys so far and you've come together on eco- economy. For um, The question here is, what are your plans for the next couple of years? What, what are the key milestones that you want to achieve? And in two years' time, if we did this call again, what would you say in terms of, okay, I've done it now. I think I've I've checked all my boxes. Of, I've, 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 I've done it. I'm, I'm there where I want it to be. So what would you like to do with yours? Thank you for that, Rune. I, I think that this is, this is a really interesting question because it's the first thing that we asked ourselves. I, I, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of startup experience is all about that. What is it you want to get done? How do you expect to get there? What do you want personally as, as founders? And, um, you know, if, if you can call it successful, what it look like? I think the... The most important questions for us are, have we done, and the reason for organizing as a social enterprise is because it's not just about making money, it's about making money and making impact and having, adding value to society in ways that you don't all often, you can often lose sight of in a strictly commercial enterprise. So for us, success looks like uh, the ability to drive decisions for um, major commercial enterprises and government policymakers through uh, a, a true interpretation of who people are and where they are in their life stage. And that comes in a variety of ways in, in primary and secondary research and uh, in services that we'll offer on a subscription basis over time. It also means that one of the measures that we set out early, because we know that commercial enterprise, as Bradley just said, public policy drafts on what happens in, in the private sector. Innovation happens, and then policy runs to catch up with how to how to monitor that or make sure it's there or, or what have you. So the idea of knowing that three years from now, for example, if there are not at least a couple of index funds that tie to innovation for social 
change and inclusion of all people, regardless of age or stage, that companies who are building product services and technologies for that market are not a part of an index fund, we will have failed. So we, we can look at the investment domain and say, it's very clear, nobody's gotten a clue here. There will be an indicator when investors are looking at it. When merger and acquisition groups and corporate strategy groups are looking at how to monitor and understand where they should be placing their bets and placing their dollars on acquisition targets who are innovating around things in their particular sector or industry, that's when we'll know. Uh, we will know when there are a whole array of startups and technologies that have nothing to do with decline and old age and healthcare and life science but are related to long life. That's when we will know we have made an impact. We will have made an impact when people stand up and say their age out loud without fear of discrimination and anxiety around the impact that that might have for their work and their ability to have a career going forward and their ability to feel that others understand them as a full-on contributor in society. It is, in fact, what we asked them to do on the Today Show segment, and they did do. And it was a very interesting process to see the entirety of the cast hold up a sign that, that said how old they were and not be afraid of, of, of a 52-year-old first-time mom, new mom, and a, and a 37-year-old with three kids sitting there saying, well, we're at the same stage. There's nothing much different about where we are. We're career people here with young families. That's when we will feel like we've been successful in terms of our mission, and that is very core to what we do. In terms of revenue, it will be growing to um, a valuation somewhere. I won't talk about revenue numbers, but a valuation somewhere uh, in the eight figures and and, uh, feeling like we've got a, a, a path to an acquisition that is very clearly defined on these same goals and, and objectives, and we have some ideas around what that would be, growing the organization you know, to a global scale so that we have presence around the world in key markets that represent this group and this opportunity to look at long life. Beautifully said. And I also think that, you know, um, given the fact that there is no definitive organization that's operating globally in this space. Um, we have a really unique opportunity to shape the conversation. And, and that, you know, that, that requires a lot of responsibility too. And we're, uh, pulling together a, a first of its kind survey, uh, and study on ageism and long life perception. And we're essentially pulling together a coalition of the willing right now of organizations that are interested in, in helping fund this study. Um, but it will be the first time we have global um, baseline data on individual perceptions, um, which is crazy when you think about the fact that that um, people have been getting old since the beginning of time, and we've just not measured it. Um, I think when we look at the larger questions of data and data collection, um, again, this is my this is my policy wonk side speaking. Um, I think we get to a point where um, there's 65 plus which is where they throw in everyone today, but we'll have a diversity of age um, in that 65 plus category too. So that we'll get better able to discern, you know, in terms of how people are measured. Um, because if life really stopped at 65, 
Um, we wouldn't have some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest business leaders, um, some of the ba- big, uh, greatest government leaders, and some of the famous actors and actresses of our time. Um, so why just say 65 and things stop? So uh, we have quite a few goals, but, uh, uh, you know, changing the world is definitely top out of our list. That, that's amazing. And Lillian, I, I agree with, with your point about, um, you know, we want to get to where people are not afraid to talk about their age. I do that. I, I made a point of, um, you know, sneaking in during my presentations or panels, how old I am. And every single time when I say it, I just see the jaws dropped in people's face like, huh? <laughs> what? It's so it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's funny. It's fascinating. Um, and, and I do wish we can get there and, uh, you guys are amazing. Uh, great start. And I can't wait to see, um, where he's going to go in the next two years. I just got to say one thing, Theo. Uh, I asked for a couple of years worth of work that you're planning to do. You almost gave me a generation worth of work. So I hope you'll be able to squeeze the 30 or 20 years worth of work into those two years. Good luck with that. Well, thanks. We we appreciate that. And I will say that the, the, the way that we sort of walk organizations into this is, uh, is that we've developed a methodology that uh, helps get past age bias before entering into innovation thinking at all, which is fascinating because I, you know, if you, if you've done products or, or services forever that, you know, we use design thinking a lot today and in, in the world and that's cool. We did it 25 years ago. We just didn't call it that and it didn't have a, a set of uh, sticky notes that go with it or methodology and everybody has theirs. But I, I think um, what was fascinating in doing that work with lots of companies was that we kept getting bound up around these predispositions that people had, you know, as you say, around age. If you look a certain age, um, you know, then then you're classified. And every time we got through design thing processes with organizations, what we heard were, were in solutions that were, went to two spectrums. One was that of old age and decline. Cycling again on healthcare and social services and all the things that are about someone in decline because that's where people's heads went. And the other was caregiving. It was the other end of that. But nowhere in the middle was this group of people like you and me who were offending, who are somewhere different, who are thinking differently, who are looking at the world differently and have 30, 40, even 50 or more years ahead of us to really consider this and to, to continue to contribute. So this methodology is about uh, workshops that are designed to remove those biases, scrape them off the table before any thinking begins around innovating in one's uh, industry or domain. So that's how we're starting that process of rent to get some of that 30 or 40 years worth of work done. We've, we've actually designed a methodology to help organizations and individuals do it. We need more. Um, you know, every time we, when you talk about like iPhones, for example, right? They did not design iPhones for grandmothers or grandfathers, but yet a lot of them love the iPods and iPhones because they use it to stalk their grandchildren. They use it to FaceTime. It, it, it's one of those things that in, when you're designing for older adults, you don't always have to like create a big old pendant in the middle that, you know, screams old and fragile. <laughs> <laughs> right? There, there are ways. Well, it, it, 
Exactly. And in fact, if you do, the chances are that your uptake will be much, much lower than if you say, mm-hmm. this is the coolest, hottest, most interesting thing. Um, like the 92-year-old woman who came to my door and, and uh, rang the doorbell and said, what is this device on your door? There's a phone and it rings. If I, if I touch this, will I call you? And I said, yes, you will. <laughs> You'll call, let me show you. So I'm showing her her video image on my phone. And she's saying, where do I get one of these? <laughs> How do I get this? So it's uh, those kinds of things. What's cool, what's interesting, what what says, I'm still a part of all this and I'm not some old person, whether I'm 59 as I am today or whether I'm 81 as my dad is. It, it shouldn't matter anywhere in there. It should be not about feeling less. It should be about feeling more. Yeah, and I think at the at the at the baseline, you know, we want to feel relevant, and whenever possible, we want to feel exceptional. And um, you know, we do believe that our think for approach is one that um, um, helps companies really understand their their customer better. And to me, that's um, if that's the small piece that we contribute at the end of the day, that's awesome. Um, because technology alone, design alone can be a great enabler. If it's done poorly, um, we push people away from being part of us. Um, so inclusion at the end of the day is the, is the number one goal, uh, and improving relevancy among all people. And I have a feeling you guys are going to go way further than that. Um, I can't wait to see. So with that, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for joining us, Lillian and Brad. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you.